Rachel. Hey, how are you doing? Hanging in there. Every day feels the same in my new uh, at-home lifestyle with my whole family. But yes, we're um, mm -hmm. trekking on through. That's a good way to put it. You know, trying to, I'm trying, I'm just trying to take it one day at a time. If I Mm -hmm. think too far in the future, I tend to want to curl up in a ball. Um, Because, you know, as, as, yeah, as we were saying earlier, um, we were talking about how the shelter in place is now. Um, in action for Virginia until June 10th, and I guess you said Maryland until further notice. Which yeah, there's no end date. So man, yeah. so one day at a time, and we don't even have to That's remember right. what day it is. That's right. I know. It, I mean, today's Tuesday, but it, we should just say that it's day. You know, right, right. <laughs> But one, you know, one silver lining is that we have gotten to do so much more podcasting and that has been so great. And today, um, gosh, we just, we have such a great episode and such a great interview that I'm just so delighted, you know, that this happened because we were all home. So that's a great silver lining, you know? Yeah. We managed to catch Allison Oz, who's the director of elementary training at the Montessori Center in Minnesota. Uh, to who I think was supposed to actually be doing a bunch of traveling and supporting schools and workshops and lecturing um, mm-hmm. somewhere else in the world, but she was home. And so we got a chance to talk with her today on supporting children in their literacy development, particularly children uh, who have dyslexia. Yeah, it was fascinating talking with her. She has so much experience. She's Orton Gillingham trained and has worked extensively and got and done a lot of talks on children who, you know, have reading struggles and specifically children with dyslexia. Um, and, you know, all of you guides in the classrooms, I'm sure you've come across a child that perhaps showed, you know, some sort of sign of, you know, reading trouble. Um, or maybe they just, you know, take a long time to get to that reading, you know, that burst into reading that it, it happens for everybody at different times. Um, and so it was just such a valuable interview um, because I think it's something that everybody can relate to um, who's worked with children in the elementary classroom and also primary guides who have worked with um, those later primary children with the language work. Yeah. Yeah, it was a really helpful uh, interview. I learned a lot from Allison about how we can work with children to support them, some of the specific things. And I think it's applicable to parents at home right now. But also, I think there are some things that that guides can use if you're doing any sort of distance uh, learning with your classrooms. There are some little things that you could, little seeds of ideas that you could do with them, even if it's on a phone call. Absolutely. Yeah, there's tons of just little nuggets of great ideas in this interview. Um, And I'm so excited we get to share it with you. And after you listen to it, (laughs) after you listen to it too, uh, you know, feel free to reach out to Allison through the Montessori Center in Minnesota. And there's some resources on their website. And her contact information is there. If you have uh, specific questions or are looking to have 
you know, get some further, further knowledge about some of the things we talk about. Yeah, so we hope you enjoyed this interview and we hope that it's helpful and useful during this time with some of your children. Um, and it's just, it's just so great to hear her share her knowledge. Uh, so we hope you enjoy. We're glad to have Allison Oz here today, AMI trainer and director of training at the Montessori Center in Minnesota. Hi, Allison. How are Hi. you? I'm well. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Jamie, for having me today. Well, we're excited to welcome you and have you uh, with us to to share some of your areas of expertise with us uh, this and this session, but especially what we'd like to have you tell us about to start is just, you know, everyone has a Montessori story. And if you could share your story, how did you find Montessori? Well, actually, I was a Montessori child. So I attended Montessori school in Minnesota uh, in the 1970s and early 80s. So I'll date myself a little bit here. Uh, <laughs> and um Really what happened was my parents were looking for a school for me, for kindergarten for me. I had been at a Montessori-inspired daycare, let's say, um, prior to that. And our neighbors had told my parents about this little neighborhood school and that they should check it out. But I don't think my parents knew anything about Montessori. Um, but as the story's been told to me, my mother went to visit the Montessori school and went to visit the, the local public neighborhood school. Uh, and it was around Halloween time. And uh, what struck her was the art hanging in the hallway at the uh, at the conventional school, if you will, at the at the at the neighborhood school, was um, a whole line, a whole series of pumpkins, orange pumpkins with green stems on them, and they looked one after the other. Um, it was like a cut and paste project, fairly identical. And then she was in the Montessori school, and the art on the walls in the hallways there was um, not theme related. It was it was one creative exploration next to the other. Uh, and, 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 and what she took away from that was really how different the philosophies of both the schools were. And so that's kind of how I ended up in Montessori school after hearing from the neighbors that it was, uh, you know, that they should go take a look at it. So um, I attended Montessori school then through the, to about 12 years old. So I had about seven years at that school uh, and then um, later found Montessori again. Wow. I'm so jealous you're a Montessori child. I always, <laughs> I get so envious when I hear about that. That's such a, uh, that's such a wonderful picture you just placed in my brain of the artwork. That's such mm -hmm. a great visual. Mm -hmm. um, so you were a Montessori child, but how did you, when did you decide that you wanted to work in Montessori? Um, I studied art history in, in college and in graduate school. And there was a moment where I was really um, losing inspiration for a life of writing and publication, which is what I was heading towards in, in um, museum education, basically is what I was studying, art, art museum education. Uh, and um, I was 
very excited about what I was studying, which was um, colonial Aztec manuscripts, but I was about one of a dozen people in the world that really cared about that. And it was going to be, you know, a dozen years before I actually saw any teaching <laughs> or education about it. It was, it was a lot of research, which I truly enjoyed, but I, but I didn't feel like I could make um, a fulfilling career of, out of it. So I went back to um, it was a, a winter break or a spring break or something. I went back to my old school that I um, just talked about in Minnesota and I had lunch, um, a little Vietnamese restaurant across the street from the school that I, I'm told that many, many meetings over the years have occurred at for that school um, with my uh, old, the old director of the school, my, my old head of school, Larry Schaefer, um, who said, hey, have you thought about being a Montessori teacher? Uh, and encouraged me to, to look into it. And so I did. And then I ended up taking training at the Washington Montessori Institute um, uh, uh, through uh, Loyola to be an elementary teacher. And then I taught elementary for a while. Yeah, Allison and I crossed paths uh, without knowing each other there when she was uh, graduating, right, from your course the summer that I arrived to start my foundation yeah. course, I think. Yeah, yeah, but we didn't we didn't meet till right. years later. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. I was mm-hmm. I was moving mm-hmm. and graduating, and you were starting the similar journey. Yep. Yep. Small world of Montessori, that's Mm -hmm. for sure. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Getting smaller all the time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. That's exactly Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. Well, Allison, we were really hoping today that you could share some of your expertise and wisdom, particularly uh, focused on working with children with dyslexia. Uh, We know that that's something that you have done a lot of research and workshops on uh, helping teachers and how, you know, how do we, what do we need to know as, as adults working with children, both parents and teachers and administrators, um, what do we need to know about children um, who have dyslexia? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that children inherit the potential for language. You know, we know this as Montessori educators. Um, we have this unconscious sens- sensitivity to language. And so that means that we're going to learn how to speak, um, barring a developmental or auditory problem, because we've been exposed to speech. So our vocal mechanisms developed, we're exposed to speech. And this is true for children worldwide, um, that at a given moment, all children will um, come to speak their native language and they'll take in the structure, they'll take in the sentence patterns, word order of the spoken language. But in, in really important contrast, written language doesn't come naturally to human beings in the same way. Um, children won't develop writing and reading without some degree of direct experience, direct preparation and instruction. And this, of course, varies from child to child about what is needed. Um, But eventually, the child has to realize that the letters that she reads represents the sounds that she hears in spoken language. That's what has to happen. And so when the child realizes that, that, that ability uh, to notice or identify or put to use those individual sounds, we call that 
phonemic awareness. So it's an awareness of phonemes and awareness of sounds. Um, and so that's probably the most important thing to remember is that our children who are struggling with reading or writing um, might be struggling or most likely are going to be struggling with a sound awareness at the basic level. And then all the other language structures are built on top of that weak foundation. It is incredible really to to when we think about it and and cognitive psychologists and all you know all sorts of experts acknowledge that reading really still even you know thousands of years that humans have been reading now or some humans have been reading it doesn't come naturally to our brains for any of us and i do think that's a really important thing for us all to remember that we have become a society where it is so central to you know daily functioning but it isn't a natural it's not natural to our brains the way that learning to speak or learning to walk or these other things are far more natural to in within our our brain structure and development that's right that's right and so dyslexia in particular is a difficulty with language it's a difficulty developing that awareness of sounds um so it's a sound based um confusion, if you will. And so what we see in dyslexic learners is that there's a gap that exists between the potential for learning and the school achievement. Um, and so they have difficulty expressing themselves, whether it's through writing or through reading or some other language uh, component. Um, so it's not a temporary struggle. It is a chronic condition. Uh, the characteristics are unchanging. Um, and there's this uh, uh, unchanging, although you can learn to be more efficient in your strategies. You can learn to um, uh, use compensation strategies, let's say, to, to be a um, better reader. So you can learn to, to learn more effectively, let's say, um, but it's not that you're curing the dyslexia. Um, and so there's always this phonological component. There's always this difficulty with sounds. Um, and, um, and also you can't be classified as a person with dyslexia if you've not had adequate classroom instruction. So you do need to have um, been in a situation in which um, learning to read was available in one way or another in order to, um, to be considered to be uh, dyslexic. So I want to talk a little bit about the classroom environment um, and how dyslexic children um, can, you know, can interact and what, what things they can do and how, how they can be successful in the Montessori environment. Um, would you say that the Montessori environment um, caters to a dyslexic child? Like what, what has your experience been with that? I, I absolutely, a child with dyslexia can have a great, great fit in the Montessori community, starting at the first plane. Um, and one of the really important things is that we've got this language-rich environment at all ages, um, but especially from zero to six, um, and, and many years of repetition around sounds and around vocabulary, uh, and enrichment and classification and all the, the particular words that go with that, more so than say one year of typical kindergarten. So if you're at an at, if you're an at-risk reader um, at that age, and, and typically we don't diagnose until a little bit later for a variety of reasons, but um, having that repetition and that multi-sensory exposure is really, really important for later success. 
Um, and so um, there's plenty for the children to do at all ages. And it really comes down to multisensory learning, which is what we're so, so great at in Montessori, is mm-hmm. that there's so many ways that children can exercise their strengths. Absolutely. I am. Um, I have a follow-up question to that. Um, as the child gets, you know, older, or maybe I know that dyslexia can um, present itself in different ways. Am I right yes. in saying that yes. it can be? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so what would you say for a child that perhaps needs more one-on-one assistance or, or things like that? Like, you know, um, I know we don't do specials or, you know, typically have a lot of those things available in the Montessori environment. Um, but what if a child needed that? you know, support. Absolutely. Yeah. And so um, just to the beginning of your question, there is no single form of dyslexia. That's right. That, that it can manifest in different ways. And then it's also on a continuum, which means mm-hmm. that you could have a really mild case or a really severe limitation. And so as such, there are children that might need more repetition than then you as the as the lead teacher, you as the guide can provide for that individual child or that child needs an individual um, um, presentation or an individual um, repetition with the adult more frequently than, than say, uh, a, a neurotypical reader would. Um, and so what I think is important to remember is that we're guiding a community, but it's a community of individuals, and all of our individuals are going to need something different, no matter if they have dyslexia or if something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. that, um, and so if your child is showing you she needs more repetition, then you need to be sure that she's getting that repetition. And it might be that she, you need another adult to support that repetition, um, and it, or another child, or or both. And that could be mom or dad, or maybe that's, um, you know, somebody else. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. I'm, um, I asked this question cause I, I dealt with it personally in one of my classrooms. So of course. Mm-hmm. I was just wondering what your take on was. Um, one thing, uh, that I found fascinating with, um, some dyslexic children that I've come across, um, their sense of hero worship sort of erupted because they were really into researching uh, great minds and um, heroes of, you know, any kind of subject that were actually dyslexic too. I thought that Uh was really, really fun. Fantastic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've seen that too with, with children in the class. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's such a good thing to remember about the characteristics of our elementary children, right? Is that they Mm -hmm. do need those heroes to emulate and they want to find people like them. Uh, and so it's so important that we have, um, oh, that we're exposing the children in our classes to um, heroes like our children, like what our children, wh- where they're from, what they look like, um, what their dreams are, all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Allison, you talked about uh, some of the techniques in terms of especially early in a Montessori environment with the with the language that we offer and the repetition and that repetition and extra practice that may be needed by children that are, you know, really struggling to develop that skill of reading. Are there other, um, well, two questions, are there other techniques or things that we can do um, to, to provide this extra support to children, but also what are some of the accommodations that we can make uh, to support children, you know, so that, I mean, because this is really hard, it's hard for all of us to learn to read, but especially for children whose brains are not, are not, that need this extra support. What are some accommodations that can help children um, 
as they're to to still do the research that they want to do or things like that. Yeah, that's right. Um, and to your to your point about the brain, um, you know the, the the what happens in the brain is that the the body takes a longer pathway, if you will, like a greater distance inside the brain to be able to do the reading. Um, and so one thing I talk to children about is is about the detour. Like we all came to school today, you know, somebody walked, someone rode their bicycle, um, somebody took the bus, um, you know, to, and one person, the bus was late or, or one person, there was a detour. So they had to ride their bicycle around the block the other way, but we all got here took a little longer, took a little less, but this is how our brain functions with reading too. Um, so if you're dyslexic, your brain has a, has a different pathway. Um, and so to the question of, of support and accommodations, um, really interestingly, as Montessori teachers, we're already providing what conventional school would call accommodations for any child that needs something. Um, so for example, um, we give children as much time as they need to complete the task. We let them express their knowledge in many ways. So they might express their knowledge as a skit or as a diorama, or they might verbally share it with another child, or they might write a report. In conventional school, that would be called giving an accommodation because the teacher would have assigned everybody's going to do a diorama or everybody's going to write a report um, to be able to, sh to show the knowledge, if you will, of whatever the subject area is. So already in, in the classroom, you know, our, our colleagues are already doing a lot of things that maybe we don't realize are accommodations. Um, things like um, choosing where you're going to work. And maybe you're going to choose so that you can have a quieter place to work or you're not as distracted because you're not looking out the window or other kinds of things. Or maybe you're going to um, choose to stand while you're working instead of sit at a desk while you're working. In, in, again, in conventional school, those things would be considered to be accommodations. So for our dyslexic children who need perhaps more time on things, who need um, more repetition, um, who will need definitely um, more vocabulary enrichment kinds of support because they won't be getting that through reading themselves as much. Um, you're probably already doing um, those kinds of things in, in the classroom. Um, other things that we can do um, are to um, partner children, one reader, one not reader, so that the not reader is still exposed to the content areas. I know you guys did a biology podcast recently. Um, you know, think about all the examples in uh, in biology where we've got um, things to read, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, and if we think of like the body function material, we've got some individual tickets with one word, and then we've also got some little paragraphs. You know, we have the same varying amounts in our, our classification structures inside of our animal story material. You know, for your non-reader and your reader working together, give the non-reader the one ticket that has the that has the single word or the two words on it. Give the reader the one that has the paragraph on it. Things like that as well would mm -hmm. be a way to give. And that's an accommodation, technically speaking. Um, but it's something that's probably in most um, teachers' toolkits already you know, that we would be doing that um, to support our children already. And, and just one thing I want to mention is really protecting the self-esteem of our children who are learning differently. Um, that very, very often um, that is, is what needs the most support. 
is that if they're coming to you and they're six or they're eight and they don't know how to read, they most likely feel like everybody else can do something that they cannot. And they would desperately want to do that, whether that's true or not. It, and it probably isn't. Probably everybody in your class can't read. And it doesn't mean they're dyslexic either. That's such a good point. The self-esteem issue and the lack of confidence. Absolutely. Because I mean, I think even for children who you're right, children maybe just be learning to read. It takes a lot of confidence to, you know, read a sentence out loud or anything like that. So nurturing that is always so important. Um, so I have a question going off of that about, you know, we're in a strange time right now with the coronavirus um, pandemic. Um, how might parents support their children that may have dyslexia um, at home in the home environment? I, I think one of the most important things really is is having a language rich environment in your home. Um, and, and, and by the way, that's, that's whatever your home language is. Um, it, it isn't necessarily the language of your school, although perhaps it is, um, but having a language rich environment. And so your children, if they can't read, you want them to be exposed to reading, whether you're reading out loud to them or a sibling's reading out loud to them, or you're listening to, um, audio books or other things, you want them exposed to that quantity of language. And, and actually the, the research really shows that, that, that the words and books are more complex than even the most articulate speaker would be. Um, and so that's something to remember, even, even though you're probably, you know, talking to your children um, a lot, that also getting content with different vocabulary is important as well. Um, and so in this time right now, um, you know, there's lots of digital content that children can be listening to that can also take some of the pressure off having somebody at home available to do the reading um, as well. Um, also language games you can be playing with your children um, for um, children that are developing sound awareness, the kinds of I spy games where, where you're saying, you know, I'm, 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 I see something on this table that begins with the sound, you know, what am I thinking of? And it's, um, I don't know what it is because I just said before I saw something on my table. Let me try again. <laughs> I'm thinking of something on my table and it um, begins with the sound. Um, what does it begin with? It begins with the sound, you know, and that's um, the table or <laughs> I, I blew it again. All right, one more time. <laughs> The problem, you guys, is that my desk has tons of stuff on it. I'm thinking of tons this of stuff great. that starts with, right? I'm thinking, or I'm, I'm seeing so many digital things. And I think that's not the example you want to use with your children, right? <laughs> right. So I see the keyboard and I see the mouse and I see the, co the cord, <laughs> the other cord. <laughs> and I see the track for trackpad. That's where I was going with that before, right? Um, so uh, there's something, you know, in here and I'm um, it's sitting on my table and it starts with the sound of for paper. You know, and so then the child mm -hmm. can say, oh, I see paper or whatever the sound is. And for our our budding learners, we'd really want to limit that. So meaning limit what the choices are. So so that's why I said it's on the table instead of saying it's in the room. You know, so on your table, you just want a few things for our older children, our experienced children. We could say 
you know, what do we, we notice in the room or in a, in a bigger place, and especially for our older elementary children. Uh, and then importantly for these sound games, what we want the children to come to is recognizing the middle sounds. So we start with the initial sounds. Later, we look at the end sounds. Later, a further acquisition is recognizing the sounds in the middle of words or in multisyllabic words, the sounds in the middle. And those are the hardest to isolate and to recognize. So children that are struggling need that kind of practice. Mm-hmm. You know, so one game might be, let's think of everything that we can that has the sound p in it anywhere in the word you know, and then let, we'll just brainstorm those words. So those are the kinds of, of language games that, that we can play at home too. And those language games are completely oral. It's not, it, we're not doing any writing with it, right, Allison? Exactly right. That's exactly mm-hmm. right. Um, there would be nothing wrong in like the later years if you had a confident writer to be mm-hmm. making those kinds of lists. But absolutely, because again, it's the awareness of the sounds that's at the root of the problem with dyslexia. Uh, so with our children who are dyslexic, it's it's really being able to isolate and, and, and hear the sounds, not in an auditory way, but in terms of the brain functioning. I think that's a really important thing to realize that I don't even know that I was completely aware of that the that I think that sometimes we tend to see other outward manifestations of what we think might be dyslexia or a child has been diagnosed with dyslexia, but to really emphasize the importance of that phonemic awareness, separate from letter reversals, separate from all of the other things that we might get caught up in, I think is a really a valuable thing to for me to really think about and focus on uh, when I think about working with children or working with teachers who are working with children who are struggling. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, um, you know, all those other things are can be manifestations, but it's all built on the layers of that sound awareness, you know, mm-hmm. so like reading comprehension, for example, can be problematic for our children who are dyslexic, but it's secondary, because they couldn't understand the words because they couldn't understand the sounds and the words. So therefore, they can't understand what they've read. You know, if, if you that same child hears that text read out loud to her, then there will be no comprehension issue in terms of dyslexia, um, because it's not about comprehension. It's about that sound awareness. What advice would you give teachers on, um, you know, when to initially speak to the parents if they perhaps had concerns about this? Um, I know that we're not um, able to diagnose and that's not what I mean. Just when do you think it's appropriate to start sharing observations or, you know, just, yeah, you know, putting it in their brain that something might be happening? Right. And you make an important point that I just want to emphasize, Rachel, and that is that we aren't trained to diagnose as Montessori teachers, um, but we are trained observers. Um, that we um, we have spent many, many hours learning how to observe. Um, and um, one of the criticisms that we often hear from our colleagues in, in um, special education is that we wait too long to share our observations. Um, I think it's important to share observations in the first plane in the children's house um, when you are seeing something that feels or looks a little off and and you don't need to know what it is you don't need to know necessarily what to do but you do need to say things to parents things like I'm noticing that um, the child is not attracted to the sandpaper letters 
and she's three, three and a half. And this is when children typically are, or I'm noticing that when we play, when we do rhyming nursery rhymes, or when we, we, um, I'm noticing that when we um, are, are saying rhymes, saying poetry and little nursery rhymes, um, that your child is not um, showing that same level of enjoyment or, or, or giggly understanding of that. And I'm going to keep an eye on that. Or I'm noticing that I, when I present the sandpaper letter A, and I've done it now five days in a row, that she doesn't remember it from day to day. So all, all I'm doing is I'm, as I'm sharing my observations. And then the part two is, so I'm going to keep some very strong records about what I'm doing. And every day we're going to do more sound awareness. And in six weeks, let's check back in. And would you take a look at home? Are you noticing anything about sounds at home? Um, and um, the reason why it's important to share your observations at the first plane is because if we wait until the child is six and she enters elementary and she's been struggling with sounds and that elementary teacher is the first person to say something to the parents about that, it usually takes the parents, you know, multiple hearings to be ready to do something. Mm -hmm. um, and that is valuable lost time at that moment. Um, and of course, uh, no parent wants to hear that their child is not learning typically or is going to have a learning obstacle or anything like that at all. And so um, it takes a compassionate adult to be sharing observations, but also repetition around that sharing before we can have a conversation that says, okay, how do we support the child? What do we need to do now? And statistically speaking, um, if children don't get intervention by the time they're about nine, it's much, much harder um, for them to learn to read. Um, and so we don't have any time to lose them in those elementary years. And the other side is if I am sharing, you know, the child isn't attracted to the movable alphabet or, or whatever the thing is, if I'm sharing that and we've talked about it, and then she is six weeks later or six months later, no harm done. What that shows right. is a really thoughtful teacher who is methodical in um, in, in the presentations, in the, in the record keeping and the understanding of the child and, and looking at for the best interest of that child. Absolutely. Allison, when we talk, could you talk a little bit about, um, when we do perhaps finally get a clear diagnosis? Uh, because, uh, it sounds like a lot of what we're already doing and what we're already trained to do is really supporting the child. Uh, a, a, a diagnosis isn't necessarily just a clear ticket to to solving, you know, like it, it isn't just that it's a magic, it's a magic wand. And now we know for sure the child has dyslexia and and therefore we can solve the issue. We still, as teachers, have to keep doing that same work we were doing before the diagnosis, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. What a diagnosis can provide, though, for the child, um, and I and I would encourage you to talk to your children if they have the diagnosis, and they're in the elementary ages or later. Um, what that can do for the child is have the child understand there's an actual understood problem with the learning, and that can provide some real security. Not that they are labeled as as incompetent or stupid or or any you know number of other things that are, that are hard on the self-esteem and um, and it can help then with uh, identifying or, or defining that child according to her strengths rather than according to 
were her struggles were. Um, The benefit of a diagnosis beyond that is when the child goes to conventional school, that diagnosis is going to uh, ensure, um, by law, at least in in this country, in the U.S., uh, accommodations based on her learning. So it's, it's, it's going to protect her and provide for her what she needs to be learning. Um, and so that can look like having audio textbooks in medical school, for example, um, by law provided to that, that, that young adult at that point. But, but the benefit of the diagnosis is, is then opening up some opportunities that are then also funded for that child um, for learning. And in, in many countries, there are sort of similar protections um, for children and for learning uh, as well. But you're right, um, having a diagnosis doesn't necessarily tell you what you need to do in the classroom better or differently, although sometimes it can. Um, what we can see in the, in the older elementary in particular is often keyboarding can be a, a good accommodation for a child. Um, it doesn't mean we don't want the child handwriting, we still do, but but what we can allow then is depth in the content area through keyboarding that perhaps couldn't come through handwriting because of speed would be slowing, um, you know, slowing down uh, uh, the, the ideas and, and the um, thought the thoughts coming out, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I think that sometimes for the, you know, teachers and guides in the classroom, we work so hard and, and feel so responsible for each and every child in our care. And sometimes we feel like, okay, well, when we get a diagnosis, that means that tons of other supports are going to come and be put in place. And we don't have to, we almost unconsciously sort of step back if some of those things come into play. But I, I, it, it seems like that all of the layers of work we have to continue and there might be a few out, you know, external resources, but we still have to, con- you know, keep that work that we're doing in the classroom, keep that strong relationship with those children that need that extra support, um, whether or not we have the diagnosis in place. Um, That's absolutely right. And and that that you as the child's teacher, you are their advocate. You're the one that knows about um, child development. You're the one that has a responsibility to that child's learning. And so we don't want to be delegating our most vulnerable children to our assistant or to other support um, teachers at our school. Those people can provide wonderful support in collaboration with you, but ultimately you're the one that needs to champion for that child. Yeah, absolutely. It's critical, just like we do for every single child. You know, that that relationship we build with them is the basis. It's it's the basis for all their learning, whether they have a struggle or something that's getting in the way or whether they don't. The basis of that, you know, that relationship really provides the foundation for their their learning. And we can't we can't sacrifice that uh, for any reason, even if we've got a dozen children that need that extra support. We just have to find ways to to get our our support outside of the classroom to help those children. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's tiring and tough work, but it's it's so important. You're right. Well, and and what's interesting now is how much we're all missing it. 
Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, of course we are, you know, those of us that are, in, those of you that are in classroom with children's, you're desperately missing your children right now. You're desperately missing that, that face-to-face interaction. And I know a lot of people are working really hard to do some things digitally. Reading aloud is a great one that can support oh, yeah. um, all the children's literacy development, uh, you know, because they're probably watching a lot more TV, but as Allison brought up, um, vocabulary level in, in regular speaking between people or on TV is about a third grade vocab vocabulary level. So we want <laughs> we want to provide some other some other language for them as well. Um, so it'll be exciting um, when we all get to be back in our classrooms again to um, to have that renewed energy to support our most vulnerable students, but also all the children uh, in our care. Absolutely. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Allison, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us today and to share some. I certainly learned. uh, I learned a lot from you today. Me too. Me too. Fascinating. (laughs) Uh, And best of luck as we navigate this new reality of spending a lot of time at home and and trying to do things remotely. Uh, I know that's impacting all our listeners and everyone right now. Yeah, Uh, that's right. Yeah, well, thank you very much uh, for having me, Rachel and Jamie. It's a a pleasure to talk about it. Uh, And I I do just appreciate advocating for our our children, but also for our colleagues um, who are you know, facing such um, differences in, in expectations right now and, and how are we going to adjust to that in the world is, is both a wonderful creative opportunity and, and also pretty overwhelming at the same time. Mm-hmm. It is. It really is. Um, Allison, if any of our listeners wanted to um, find you on social media or anything like that, do you have any Thing like that that you can share or uh, well certainly the Montessori Center of Minnesota website mm-hmm. you can reach me through there um, absolutely we offer um, teacher training and professional development and we're also connected to the um, Cornerstone Montessori Elementary Charter School in St. Paul Minnesota uh, as well um, so definitely people could find me there um, and I'm, I'm happy to hear from your listeners and Allison, in in normal times, you do workshops around the world on dyslexia and working that's right, with children. children. Yeah, um, that's right. <laughs> and that's and right. I wish that we could plug some of those, but um, <laughs> but you know, keep us posted if anything happens online in the future. And certainly, the Montessori Center of Minnesota will have uh, their website will have some of those resources as well. I know a lot of training centers are trying to offer some digital connection times, whether it's a formal workshop or just times to connect. So, uh, so take a look there and, and, uh, and when life gets back to normal, Allison, I'll be back out on the, on the workshop circuit again. That's right. That's right. Um, through the, um, the training center website, you'll see also an article that I published on Montessori and dyslexia that you can access there as well. Um, that is, um, um, connected to the workshop, but yeah, you're right. I do do a lot of school visits. Typically, um, I do, um, mentor coach teachers, uh, in the classroom and in, in particular about how to support literacy in the Montessori classrooms and that kind of thing as well. Um, 
and yeah, we'll, we'll stay tuned for what the new reality is going to be around how that um, is all going to function as well. But um, but for the time being, we'll all stay home and That's right. uh, wash our hands and do our best to fight this crazy uh pandemic um and and look forward to the times when we're all back in classrooms again yeah yeah agreed well thanks again allison this has been just 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 great thank you so much you're welcome thank you thank you <laughs>